This is Roosevelt Griffin, 2014 Golden Apple recipient, and you are listening to Behind the Note Podcast with Chris Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, this is episode number 28. Thank you so much for pressing play today. You're in for a great episode. Now, some of you left some questions on Facebook for today's episode, And I want to say thank you first, and we're going to get to answer your questions today. So what is today's show about? Some of the questions we're going to answer include this. What are the non-musical lessons that you should be sharing with your students? We're also going to get some great tips for how to live well on the road. And finally, what is a great way to start a relationship with someone that you may have grown up watching? Maybe this person is someone that you looked up to and admire? How do you begin a relationship with someone who seems so far away? We're going to talk about that. And the best person to talk about this is today's guest. Today we have one of the best and greatest trumpet players of our time. He has performed with Dana Hall, Wynton Marcellus, Benny Golson, Dizzy Gillespie's All-Star alumni big band the list goes on he's been on television on the tonight show with jay leno and he has a a great body of work and i'm just happy that he has agreed to be here with us today he's also the director of jazz studies at temple university and i'm going to introduce to you right now mr terrell stafford thank you terrell so much for joining us today on the show we're glad to have you great to be here chris I want to ask you, uh, before we get into everything, tell us what are some things that you're interested in outside of music? I want to get to know you a little bit. Well, I love to exercise. Of course, you can't always see that, but I love to do it. I love to cook, which I'm doing right now. I love gadgets. I love computers. Hanging out with friends. Love it. Yeah, so what, what kind of exercises are you into? Are you into the weights? Are you a runner? I like to run. Right on, man. Yeah, I, I like to knock my little three miles out, and I'm a happy camper. Woo, three miles. <laughs> that's that's kind of big for some of us like me. But, oh, uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love to, uh, I mean, I think it all it all helps out with what we do, you know? Yeah, that's very true. Will you tell us a story about how you got to play trumpet as your instrument? I've always wanted to play trumpet. I've always, uh, my, my grandparents had a trumpet at, at their house that belonged to my cousin. So ever since I saw the trumpet, I wanted to play it. But I had to play string instruments first. That's just how the music program worked, where I started to play in El Grove Village. So unfortunately, I had to play strings, which tortured a lot of people because I was awful. And uh, I did that uh, for a few months until uh, my teacher had hit me enough on the hand with his bow and accidentally hit him with my bow and got uh, suspended from a music program for a year, which the year I was suspended, I started to play guitar, and then finally I was able to get to the trumpet. And since I'm, once, once I got the trumpet in my hand, I haven't let it go since. You know, even from being in middle school, you know, my parents had to take it out of my hand at the end of the day to stop practicing after a couple hours in middle school each day. And were you into trumpet like that uh, because 
you had someone that you were looking up to or was it just that much fun for you? It was just that much fun. Okay. It was, um, you know, I didn't know I had uh, the disease. I, I didn't know I was dyslexic when I was younger. My parents, my mom was reading specialist. She knew. But when it came to like reading and stuff like that, it was always a challenge. So when I finally got to play the trumpet, it seemed like that was something that I could do and really enjoy. And I and I did an okay job with it. So it really helped, you know, self confidence and self esteem. So when did you decide to pursue a career in jazz music, and why did you make that decision? Um, well, I didn't. the The career that I chose for myself was uh, more classical music than jazz. And I chose that when I was auditioning for colleges because that's what I got a scholarship in the University of Maryland um, for, you know, for classical trumpet. So that's what I kind of thought my destiny was going to be, be a classical trumpeter. And when I was in college, I played in the big band and stuff like that, but never really took any classes or anything like that. And then it wasn't until grad school, really, that um, a couple things happened. One, I met a great trumpet player, Bud Herseth, who's principal was principal of Chicago Symphony for years, and and uh, I asked him the same question you asked me earlier. You know, what do I do? What did he do on his spare time? And he told me that um, what he liked to do is he liked to after he gets out of church, he likes to go play in a Dixieland band, which he said was was really humbling considering he was principal of Chicago Symphony. So. You know, he was just letting, you know, let me know at a young age Well, I was in my master's, getting my master's, but let me know how important it is for all musicians to to learn how to improvise. It really gets your ears stronger. So that was that was uh, one thing that got me into jazz. And then the second thing was I was playing a recital, classical recital with a vocalist. We were playing Let the Bright Seraphim, um, a handle piece. And in that piece, there's improvisation that happens. The vocalist sings a part of a line and, and what happens is the piccolo is supposed to mimic her what she sings, but but she was the first one that actually sang something that wasn't on the page. And I really couldn't get to it quick enough to mimic her. So, you know, her comments to me at that point were, you know, make sure you go do your homework so that um so that you can mimic whatever I do or repeat whatever I do. So by doing that exercise, really started to get me into jazz, and and um, you know different people heard me practicing it and were giving me pointers and tips. And I'd met Kenny Barron because he was one of the professors at the school I was at, and um, and so many people just guided me in that direction. So I started to get like three times as much work in the jazz arena than I was in classical. So I just figured this was like my destiny. So I followed it, and here I am now. Wow, that's a great story. I have two questions based off of what you just told us. Sure. How, how did you feel when the vocalist gave you that that criticism? Um, I was humbled. She was uh, she was a, prof- a voice professor in the college, and it was it was harsh the way she said it. You know, she was like, you know, you're supposed to be Professor Fielder's pride student, and you can't even really come in here. Your ears aren't in tune. And and the other part of it is that I was playing on piccolo trumpet, which was an A. And, you know, I normally play on a B-flat trumpet or an orchestra. I play on a C trumpet. So sometimes a B-flat or C trumpet, it's easier to hear things and get to it. But I wasn't finding it so easy in the key of A, transposing it and trying to figure out 
what to play behind her. So it was humbling, but um, I'm glad she shared and what it, it, it took me to a whole nother level as a, as a person and as a musician, I think. What were some of your first steps toward improving in that area? Well, you know, Kenny Barron had asked me when I, my, when I went to him, he'd asked me how much jazz was I listening to. And I said, you know, not much. And that was his first, that was his first suggestion, you know, get some recordings and, and don't try to do anything with the recordings, just listen. And that's what I did. I got some recordings and I listened and, and, um, and then from then on, after that point, I started to just transcribe and I still do to this day just to try to get as much information under my fingers as possible. And, you know, hanging out, it's, it's amazing. The jazz community is amazing how, how um, if, if they see you're hungry and you're eager, they are very willing to share and to assist and to help and to, to be there for you. And, and, I, and I found that not only musically, just personally as well. So yeah. it's a great community. Are you the type of transcriber that writes down what you hear, or do you just play by ear and memorize? Yeah, I just memorize it. Okay. Um, I don't write too much down. I, I started to write some stuff down just because someone had said at one point, you know, it's good to look at it and analyze it. But, I mean, a lot of it I can analyze from hearing it, especially if it's a tune you know. Um, but some is good to write down. And I was starting to write some down just because um, – you know, other folks said if you write it down, it just makes you a better reader because you're just you're able to visualize what a lot of the rhythms are. So that prompted me to write things down as well. Will you tell us some of the key lessons you learned from Dr. Fielder? Yeah, Fielder was amazing. He was a he was a he was a tough teacher, um, but it seems like a lot of teachers I've had in my past were really really tough, and I and I respect that because. Out of him, him being super tough and super firm, there was always a lesson to learn. And uh, he would be a great person for not only students to be around, but I think he would be a great person for a lot of teachers to be around. Oftentimes teachers hard on students and criticize, but they don't have much to offer them in improving. And no matter what Fielder said to you, he had a solution for you, which, which I found to be um, a great quality as a teacher. So when I met him, I quit trumpet actually for, I probably quit for a good six, seven months. I basically quit because my undergraduate teacher discouraged me when he told me that, you know, since I don't play right in the center of my lips, my armature is off to the side some, that I wouldn't really be able to pay, play past the age of 25. And uh, that was extremely discouraging. So um, after hearing that from a teacher, you know, I was like, well, if I'm not going to be able to play, you know, that's just like four or five years away. I might as well find something else I should do. And that's when I became a computer programmer and a tutor in trigonometry. And then when I met Fielder, he just, he pretty much said, you know, you have a lot to learn. You know, your sound is thin because you're doing this. You're not using enough air, you're using too many muscles. And he kept saying, you know, Arnold Jacobs would always speak about Strength equals weakness, weakness equals strength. And he kept, Fielder kept saying that to me over and over and over. And I found that to be brilliant because it's so true. I mean, if you're like playing from tightness and, and um, pressure and everything else, it really um, makes your playing weaker. Whereas if you can play relaxed and free and use, use air or use wind to get, you, get things vibrating, 
your playing has, there's a freedom to it. There's a ring to the sound that you want to get. So that was a big thing for Fielder. And he talked about wind and air, you know, the difference between wind and air. Air is what we take in and wind is what we put out because wind has motion. And so, you know, thinking about air and how we use it was brilliant. And uh, he was also a huge advocate of the Doc Reinhardt pivot system, which was great for me as well. And, and fortunately, I had a, an opportunity when I was an undergrad, actually, to get a lesson from Doc Reinhardt to learn about the pivot system and how to use it. So from those things, from just learning how to use air, from the pivot system, and just you know, from Fielder's high, high expectations of his students, um, you put it all together and you, know, you just have a lifetime of things to work on. Wow, those are some those are some very valuable lessons, and thanks for sharing with us right now. Absolutely. So right now I'm going to go into some questions from the listeners, mm-hmm. and we have a question here. What is your approach to expanding your voice as a composer? That's a very challenging question because one of my biggest challenges is just composing because um, I don't do it so often, and I should do it more, but I do it when I'm under pressure. For example, I just had to write a commission for a network for new music, and they gave me like eight months to write it, and I probably wrote it five days before the commission was due, which is which is not a great model to to set. But um, the thing that I found in the the months prior to that was that I knew the the style that I wanted to write in. I knew I wanted to um, to write something um, that had some rhythmic, but had a groove and and so I just started to saturate myself in, in different composers. One of my favorite composers is Freddie Hubbard. One of my favorite players is Freddie Hubbard, too. And then another great and favorite composer is, is Benny Golson. Um, so I listened. I saturated myself in those two composers and listened to themes and variations and, and how simple they kept things at times and how complex they kept things at times. Um, so I think... My same inspiration as a player is probably my same inspiration as a composer. And hopefully 10 years from now, I can really answer that question better once I've gotten better at, at composing and more proficient and efficient at it. Uh, but right now, I consider myself in the infancy stages, stages as a composer. Thank you very much, Terrell. Mm-hmm. All right, the next question is from Brady Lewis. Could mm-hmm. you Could you ask how he incorporates mouthpiece buzzing into his practice or warm-up. Yep, I, I buzz the mouthpiece every day. Um, some people say, I mean, it's a, mouthpiece is a huge, when it, it's a you know, huge point of controversy because some people say, you know, if you buzz the mouthpiece, you're not getting the same resistance as a trumpet. And, and, you know, other people say mouthpiece buzzing will destroy you. I haven't really found that to be the case. So... For me, if something works, I do it until it doesn't work, you know, so, but I do buzz my mouthpiece and I have my hand around the mouthpiece to give it some resistance that's very similar to the, to the trumpet, not identical, but similar. Um, and then there's times that I buzz the mouthpiece just to hear the sound of the buzz, to hear the core, the center of the buzz, to hear the air on the outside edges of the buzz, because that's kind of the sound that I want on my trumpet. I want to thicker, darker core to the center. Um, and I want a little bit air around that core to provide warmth. So I, I try to get the same thing 
when I buzz. But I buzz probably every day for about five, ten minutes, um, especially just getting the air flowing. I, I, I like to double tongue when I buzz because Fielder would always say, if you double tongue and it's vertical or it has no motion or no flow to it, then there's a there's an issue with air. So I spend every day buzzing, double tonguing when I buzz just to make sure the air is flowing. So I, I find it really, really beneficial. Okay, now I'm trying to visualize what you just explained because the multiple tonguing is uh, personally one of my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So what do you what do you mean when you say vertical? In this case, um, well, you know, there's different syllables. If you look in and like the Arbin's book, everything is tuku tuku tuku, and even to say tuku 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 is very vertical. There is there's no forward motion to it. It's very uh, uh, up and down. Tuku. It's almost two words. So what I use instead of tuku, I use daga daga daga, which is one sound, and there's a flow and connectivity through it all. So if there's a flow and connectivity when I'm buzzing my mouthpiece, I, I get the same I get the same thing. I get a flow through the multiple tonguing instead of choppiness. I see. That makes perfect sense. Okay, I understand. Thank you. Thanks, Brady, for that question. Okay, we have one more question from Mark Mark Hebert. Mm-hmm. Can you ask Terrell about what kind of musical lessons he tries to share with his students besides just mastering the instrument. I'd be interested to hear coming from someone with such a huge background in classical music and a great jazz career. I mean, a lot of the lessons that I teach my students are are lessons that people have taught me. So coming from a classical a classical background, the largest I shouldn't say large, but I would say the most challenging most challenging obstacle I had was learning how to swing coming from a classical background. And, um, and so I still find to this day, even some of my jazz students, um, you know, they're, they, they don't really think about how to make something feel good. They just try to emulate what feels good. And I think that's really great. But I think um, to take what we do to another level, it's always good to have a, a, a true understanding of, of everything we do. And that's a lifetime, of course, of, of study. But um, someone by the name of Clark Terry sat me down and helped me to really learn how to swing through his doodle-tonguing lessons. And, you know, not to say that I doodle-tongue now or I'm a master expert, but the whole concept in doodle-tonguing really helped me to grasp how to swing and help me to grasp how to even to accent notes and how to play eighth notes, et cetera, et cetera. So I share lessons with that with, with my students. And then, you know, if you talk to someone like one, one of my huge mentors now is John Faddis. And when we speak, we speak a little bit about the trumpet, but, you know, just about life and how to handle conflict and, and how to handle yourself as a person. Those are kind of lessons I teach as well, because I think <clears throat> as a musician, we, we are all out here, we're trying to get better and we're trying to improve. But um, I think to develop community, we have to learn how to really communicate with one another. We have to learn how to, to trust one another. We have to be trustworthy ourselves. And I, I think teaching those kind of lessons um, is really important because that keeps the music going. 
making a great musician um, is, is, is what we need to do as teachers, but I think making great human beings um, is what we need to do just as humanitarians. And I think that's as important, if not as important, as to playing music. Thanks a lot uh, for that question, Mark. And Terrell, what a great answer. Thanks for sharing that with us, too. Mm-hmm. All right, we're about to enter the coda, which is something new that I'm trying here. And okay. every musician knows what the coda is. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first question for you in this section is, will you give us some tips for living well on the road? For example, how do you maintain your chops and how do you manage rest? And do you get to even study for your personal growth? You know, how, Give us some tips for living well on the road. That's a great question. Um, well, the first thing, I mean, I do try to, I think uh, clarity of mind is really important. However, a person chooses to achieve that. So that's pretty much why I try to run, go for a run, or I try to get on an elliptical, or I try to get out and, and do something physical to clear my mind. Because, I mean, that's really, in a lot of ways, we have to make room in our busy minds to grow. And the only way to do that is to clear it each day, however we choose to do so. So that would be one thing. And then the next thing as far as maintenance on the road, I mean, you know, it's kind of a dichotomy when people say you have to learn how to eat right on the road because what you have to learn to do on the road is is to eat well. Eating right and eating well, I thought were always synonymous, but it's not because if if you're eating well, you're not fast food and stuff like that, you can usually maintain a healthy living, whereas, you know, Finding that perfect meal sometimes is just not really applicable when you're on the road because you don't have as much flexibility. So I just say, you know, just eating, eating well, finding great places as opposed to saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, only eat tofu for the next month. I don't know how realistic that is, especially being in a place like Germany or even Italy, having the discipline to do that. But so eating well, I think, is really great uh, as far as chops are concerned. I've probably been doing the same routine for the past, I'm trying to think, uh, maybe 25, 30 years. And so some people said doing the same routine is is great because, uh, I mean, I think it's great because every day that I do it, I see what I really need to work on. Other people said doing a routine, the same thing every day is not great because it, your muscles are trained and it's going to be the, you know, they're going to learn how to respond to doing the same thing. Um, but I haven't found that to be the case. So I, I do the same thing. I have a maintenance routine. I have a growth routine and I do different routines depending on how much time I have and, and where I am on the horn. I mean, you can start to feel when you're on the road, when you need to do certain things, you know, you may need to, to do a really quiet routine one day, or you may need to do a routine that's based on bends or a routine that's based on flexibility or even a routine that's based on range building. So, and that's what I find when I do my basic 30, 40 minute routine, it, it lets me know exactly the areas that I'm starting to, starting to um, be deficient in. So I think that's really important, finding some, some consistency, you know, because uh, what you find is when you travel, whether you have a, a 20 hour flight to get to Australia or you have a 15 hour flight to get to Japan, when you get to these places, Everything feels different. You know, you're, sometimes your lips are more swollen depending how you sleep. And if you really start depending on your physical body, it could be nerve-wracking. So what I do 
is really try to keep my air flowing. I use a, a device every day called an Ultra Breathe, which is um, it's an incentive spirometer, which really helps. It really helps get breathing consistent, and I use that in addition to buzzing. And then my my routine that I do just helps keep me in shape. And as far as growth is concerned, uh, I think the growth part is the easiest part, especially when you're traveling with musicians that are like incredible. Uh, even if you travel with musicians that aren't so incredible, there's always something to learn. Always. So, you know, traveling out on the road with someone, you hear them practicing, you hear what they're working on, you ask them what they're working on, they show you, and you go check it out. And then that just keeps you growing constantly. You know, I, I was just, this just past week, I was on the road with the Clayton brothers this past week, and Gerald Clayton was working on some some stuff before the concert. And whether I ask him what he's working on or whether I put a mute into my horn and, and figure it out and didn't go home and, and shed on it, you know, you're always, you're always around something that inspires you to keep growing and learning, or you should be at least. So, um, that's kind of what I do to maintain on the road. Um, good exercise, eating well, really, really using my routine to measure my strengths, my weaknesses, what I need to do, what I don't need to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. What do you use for your growth routine and your maintenance routine? My maintenance routine is is basically I do the chicken flow studies, um, and I do uh, an exercise from page one seventy seven out of the Arvin's book. Um, I um, play through Charlier, one of the Charliers, usually number uh, number two. Well, I do the Goldman studies, number one from the Goldman studies. Um, and then I usually do Clark three or four, the whole study with the etude. And, and just from that, I can pretty much measure where I am. And then I go back and, and after I've kind of measured where I am, I practice the things that, that need the most help. Um, as far as like a, a growth routine is when I'll bring certain etudes out on the road with me that I haven't played before, whether it be Maybe it's something out of the Charlie book. Maybe it's something out of uh, uh, a Russian etude book that Fielder had given me a while back. Or it could be—I don't know—it could be—it could be the same one of the same um, studies or etudes that I've been playing for a while, and I just decide, you know, this section I never play great, so it's time for me just to take these five bars and practice them for the next hour. And usually doing something like that, I mean, you grow more ways than you really realize. And then, you know, finding a tune and just shedding through that tune. I mean, really shedding through it. Like, you can shed through it. Some people like to shed through it through the keys, and I think that's really beneficial, learning things through the keys. Certain tunes, I just want to learn how to to play melodies over them. So um, learning how to play a melody, and that could lead to, like, writing a tune. That's where my writing comes from. If I, if I learn a tune and I want to really learn how to play it, I'll write a melody over it. And that helps me to grow even more in that tune because I have to know the harmony to write a melody. So that would be my growth routine. My growth would be incorporating more jazz into my routine where my main maintenance is just fundamentals. Nice. Thanks for sharing that with us. So what is the best way you have discovered to meet someone that you that you admire without sounding like every other person and hopefully leave a good impression on them? That's a good question. I mean, you know, someone like I, you know, I, I admire Wenton a lot. I admire his discipline. 
I admire how he achieves his goals. So, um, you know, he made a, when made a statement to me a long time ago that he, we were talking about transcribing and he was kind of saying, you know, a lot of people transcribe and, and they get the vocabulary and they learn it verbatim and then they, you know, end up sounding exactly like someone or their goal is to do that. He goes, where? He goes, just imagine if we had a world of people who transcribed and wanted to learn the intent of the soloist. And I found that to be brilliant, you know. Um, so I follow that now. If, if, I, if I transcribe something, I really want to learn the intent. Like, what was Clifford Brown thinking in, you know, in, in this particular measure? Or, or what was Kenny Dorm, you know, when he would play his tritone subs? You know, what, what was he trying to do? What was, his, what was his goal, you know? And learning characteristics of each player, a great thing to, for, to do to not sound like someone, but to really understand someone is to take a, like a simple tune like Happy Birthday and be able to play Happy Birthday like Roy Eldridge would or like um, Bubba Miley would or like Cootie Williams or like Clifford. To be able to play the melody, be able to play a solo over those simple, simple chord changes. And, and to me, if you're doing that, then you're learning the characteristics that make each player who they are and really special. And then in choosing those characteristics, it's going to make you who you are and make what you do really special because you're choosing, you're choosing characteristics as opposed to just vocabulary verbatim. Wow, that's a great answer. I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, I think you kind of uh, misheard me or maybe I wasn't clear. Uh-huh. But that was a great answer and some great knowledge. We're still going to apply that. Mm-hmm. But 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 what I was trying to get to is like for example, if I saw you in concert mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed your your concert, and then I saw you after the show, uh-huh. I guess I'm I'm asking like how how can someone stand out to you instead of just saying oh great concert bye bye see you later you know if if they really wanted to perhaps develop a, a real relationship you know mm-hmm. with I you think. yeah. Um, I think that's repetition. I mean, I, I remember years ago that, you know, when I when I started to play in Philadelphia more, someone that I truly admired was McCoy Tyner. So every time and everywhere McCoy Tyner would play, I would show up every time, you know, and I'd say, hey, Mr. Tyner, my name's Terrell Stafford. And after a while, I didn't have to tell him my name anymore. He'd say, hey, yeah, yeah, how you doing? And so... You know, with 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 me being consistent and going out and and hearing him, being consistent in my communication with him, led to me probably being somewhat respected by him in in time. I know for me, when people come up to me, like you know, last night I played at the Village Vanguard. There's certain guys that I see that that come pretty regularly, and I establish a relationship with them, and and you know, after time when a relationship's established, you start to speak about certain things or they have certain questions and it's it's not like a lesson, it's just it's a matter of sharing. Whereas sometimes you meet someone, you know, one time and you say, Hey, can I get a lesson from you? And sometimes I'll say, Yeah, let's 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 get together for a lesson. And then when I get together, you know, they'll say, Oh, let's just jam. And and you know, that totally rubs me the wrong way because I don't, I, you know, if I'm on the road, that's the last thing I want to do is get together and jam. But, and then sometimes you get together with folks and they say, let's get together for a lesson. 
and then you step into a room and say, okay, what do you want to learn? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Well, you know, what do you want to teach me? And that's always a difficult one, too. So, you know, I, I think when you meet someone, if you want them to respect you, repetition is important. You're just going out and developing a relationship before anything else. And I think if you develop a relationship in time, people really want to share. You don't have to worry about getting a lesson. You don't have to worry about really gaining respect because it's it's all about relationships. It's all about community and it's all about, you know, in time, friendships. I hope that was your question. Yes, it was. And thank you. That was that was perfect. And I have more questions, but we're out of time and I want to respect your time. And I want to just say thank you so much for sharing with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Wow. What a great talk with Terrell Stafford today. We learned so many things. And you know what? We even got to talk about some technical things on how to play a brass instrument. And if you like that kind of talk, let me know. Behindthenote.com. Just leave me a voicemail. Because if you like that, we can do more of that. So just want to say thanks again for sticking with us this far. If you like what you heard today, share it with someone. And I have something for you at BehindTheNote.com slash gift. See you in the next episode. We'll be talking with trumpeter Ingrid Jensen. Take it easy.